And while we're getting settled, just in case you thought you had something else to do or somewhere else to go, I want to read you one of my favorite poems from Jane Hirschfield. This is from her book, The Lives of the Heart. She says, The 21st century, how quickly the thoughts will grow dated, even quaint. Our hopes, our future, will pass like the hopes and futures of others. And all our anxieties and terrors, nights of sleeplessness, griefs, will appear then as they truly are, bumbling delirious bees in the sea scent of jasmine. So truly, we don't have anywhere else to go or anyone else to be or anything else to do than just what we've been doing this evening. And I thank you for joining together to do this, to sit quietly, to be receptive, to turn off the manipulative tendencies that we have to try to make things work or happen or be in control. So we just sit. And there's a beauty in that. And I'm kind of experimenting with a, a thought about what goes on when a lot of people sit. And I, the word I come up with is resonance. I think there's a resonance. Um, maybe an awareness that kind of spreads and interacts just as we sit. I'd like to say a couple words about how to listen or how I propose you listen to this Dharma talk. The mind is not a good tool many times. Sometimes it is. But what I'd like to urge you to do is listen with your heart and not so much the mind. I hope it does make some sense, at least in part. But what I'm going for this evening is something that is more on the resonance level. The title that I'd like to have for this is something like Mindfulness as Direct Experience. There's lots said about mindfulness the tradition of mindfulness actually began before the Buddha, who was born in 563 B.C. And when he came into being, there was already a strong tradition of people that would retreat from life and would sit and would be quiet. It goes way back. And he brought some special qualities to it. But people for a long time have appreciated the value of direct experience, not analytic experience, not a conceptual experience, but just direct experience, something that happens in our beings, in our bodies. The traditions that have grown from the teachings of the Buddha are many about the turn of the common era, there was a great flowering of thought. And what had begun as the thinking and the teaching 
of a small group that would sit under the roots of trees and be quiet and be as attentive as they could to life just as it was happening. That small group created a tradition that by the time the common era turned uh, had become very rich and very complex. And I just want to mention one particular thread that uh, occurred about 150 years after the turn of the common era. Right around that time was the beginning of what's called Mahayana Buddhism. And one of the great teachers of Mahayana Buddhism was a genius philosopher from South India named Nagarjuna. And his teaching was about direct experience. And what he hoped to do was to stop all of the mind developments that had begun to splinter the teachings that originally were simple and straightforward. Not easy to do, but simple. And so this was about 450 or 500 years after the Buddha. And the thrust of Nagarjuna was to create an experience for us where we could directly know something without having to use our uh, rational thought. So I'm going to read a little piece about what he talked about. This is from the Buddhist Handbook, The Complete Guide to Buddhist Schools, Teachings, Practice, and History by John Snelling. So he's talking about Nagarjuna. He says his major work was to create verses on the middle way. In the great tradition set by the Buddha, Nagarjuna devised new ways for driving us into the arena of the inconceivable. Rather than propounding a philosophy as such, he advocated a method, the technical term for which is dialectic, which if rigorously applied, ruthlessly negates all parts of opposites. So the middle way is dynamically generated by the mutual negation of dualities, such as production and extinction, annihilation and permanence, unity and diversity. So this was a, a flowering that began, and Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism led to much of what we know today as Buddhism, uh, Zen and Chinese Buddhism and Tantra and Tibetan Buddhism. Much of that uh, was an origin there. And so the idea was by talking about opposites, we would somehow, the mind would be able to give up its rush to control or rush to understand and we would be left with a direct experience. In the Zen tradition, there are koans 
And we had Norman Fisher, a wonderful Zen teacher here a couple of weeks ago. Was anybody here at the Norman Fisher day? Kelly was. Wonderful experience. And koans were kind of the same idea uh, to help us put aside our usual rational struggle to handle, control, manipulate, and to sort of abandon our awareness into a new space, something where there's something fresh and vital. So I have an example. A student says, tell me the essence, the meaning of Zen. A Chinese Zen master called Zha Zhou says, it is the oak tree in the courtyard. Tell me the essence of the meaning of Zen. Yes, it is the oak tree in the courtyard. The Buddha himself, toward the end of his life, was asked, how can we survive if you pass on? We've depended on you so much. And so his last teaching goes something like this. Being aware of the body in the body, earnestly, clearly, and having let go of desire and sorrow in the world. It's experiencing just feelings in feelings. The mind in the mind. And thoughts in the thoughts. Earnestly, clearly, then, truly, the enlightened one is an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge. So one of the hallmarks of this wonderful tradition that we're inheritors of is this idea that we can directly experience the truth of life. And we can be inspired by the teachings of others, uh, the examples of others. We can certainly learn and observe and in investigate. But there's nothing that we must accept on faith or on someone else's saying. Our appreciation or our acceptance of our experience is key. So I'm going to give you something to remember to kind of help you with this concept that I'm talking about, which is really uh, how do we directly experience. So my little memnonic, I always... Uh, like to have memnonics to hang on to difficult or imponderables or unimaginables, as John Snelling said. So the memnonic is one eye, one heart, one seat. One eye, one heart, one seat. The one eye is the subjective eye the I that is each of us 
before we fill in the next piece, which is M a man, M a business person, M a homeowner, M a father, M a mother, I, just the I, just the, the space that we fill with our awareness before we start identifying and differentiating ourselves. In the Christian tradition, there is said to be the teaching, let thine eye be single. This is, I think, a similar vein. Let thine eye be single. When you see, just see. Experience the seeing just as you see it. When you hear, just experience the hearing. Let thine eye be single. So Norman Fisher, when he was here, talked about the one eye. He said, the eye is always awake. Its only attribute is awakeness. We all have this eye. This awakeness is awareness, like space, which doesn't care. It's not concerned with comings and goings. It just notices. It can investigate, but not separate. Just awareness, just seeing. The seeing that sees seeing. So that's the one eye, this this field of awareness that we can fill as we sit and become quiet and notice. The one heart, to me, is where things get really fascinating because that's the embodied awareness. In the Buddhist tradition, the mind and the heart and being and heart are thought of as being pretty much the same thing. It is this space of awareness that is embodied in us. So we sense in our bodies and our bodies as modern uh, psychology and psychoneuroscience and so forth is coming up with. Our bodies are, are intelligence mechanisms. They're, they're filled with intelligence. We, we get a lot um, just by being in our bodies and let, letting our bodies create an, an aware space. There's an institute in Boulder Creek called the Institute for Heart Math, and they've done lots and lots of research on uh, heart as uh, an awareness source for us. And it turns out that, um, according to them, they have a wonderful website and lots of uh, good seminars and so forth, the heart has as many neurons in it as the brain does. Not quite, but a lot. Certainly more than any other part of the body. And so the heart is kind of like a little brain unto itself, a little awareness center. And I certainly can sense that when I sit and meditate. I have uh, a sense of uh, kind of when I start meditating, I'm kind of in the mental mode and I've got things buzzing around at this level and I just kind of sink down and and um, 
sometimes after long meditations, I, I, I can get even uh, down into my stomach and down into my legs, kind of sensing an awareness space. So this is what the one heart refers to. There's a, a reading from Goethe, the German philosopher. He said, the world is so empty if one thinks only of mountains, rivers, and cities. But to know someone here and there who thinks and feels with us and who, though distant, is close to us in spirit, this makes the earth for us an inhabited garden. So this is the embodied awareness the introduced sense of value in human life. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, pioneered uh, an understanding of a human psyche that has kind of grown into the Myers-Briggs type indicator. You guys uh, who are in business may have taken the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Millions are administered every year, and there was a big article in the New Yorker, uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago or something like that, about the Myers-Briggs. It wasn't very complimentary, but I didn't think they really understood what Jung was talking about. Um, Jung said that there are certain types of personalities, and we all kind of slide into those types. And from that came this tool that is used to kind of help people understand what their preferences are and what their differences are. Chris and myself and another person from the Sangha, Andrea, are in October are going to be giving a series on another typology that comes from the Buddhist tradition, a typology that looks at people in terms of a propensity for greed a propensity for avoidance, and a propensity for delusion. Another way of thinking about how we all kind of cope with life. How do we deal with the complexity of life? And that's going to be at the Coastside Vipassana Center, which is at the Montara Lighthouse. And it's a beautiful place to sit, really remarkable. I noticed as we were sitting earlier, the sound of the air conditioning system was kind of like the roar of the ocean in the background. Anybody notice that? And then when it came on, the the cool air just kind of breezed across. So if you'd like to experience the real ocean and (laughs) real air, (coughs) the Coastside Vipassana group meets on Wednesday evenings. Really remarkable group. Jung was interviewed by a BBC series called Face to Face. And the moderator said to him, do you believe in God? And you may know this story. Jung thought for a minute and he said, well, I'm having trouble with your word belief. He said, For me, it's more like I know rather than believe. 
And so that's what I'm wanting to talk about this evening, how to, how to be in that space where we more know than believe. Another saying of Norman Fisher, he said, delicate spiritual awareness may be irrelevant to living in the world. Delicate spiritual awareness may be irrelevant to living in the world. Interesting idea that I think there is a tendency when we we um, get into this space of just I, just the subjective I, to have it be a bit delicate. He says to live vitally day by day, we must soften, get beyond our brutality. Our heart feels existence, positions us between the abstract and the concrete, brings a feeling of quality to awareness. So the one eye and the one heart together are a combination that give us this vigor and vitality. The awareness space just by itself has a beauty, a a transcendence, a a quality of of poetry and of fresh air and, and, and vastness. Emptiness is the term that's used often in Buddhist traditions. Emptiness not meaning blankness, but emptiness meaning awareness that has potential, just awareness. But we need the heart. One of my favorite philosophers is um, a guy who you probably know more as a songwriter, Leonard Cohen. He wrote a number of songs. He lived in Greenwich Village in Montreal and um, had a lot to say at a time when I think the world was struggling with uh, horrors and, and unthinkable things happening that we were reading about. We were newly experiencing through the medium of television. We, we saw the horror of violence so graphically that we just, you know, we'd always heard it in radio reports or news headlines or whatever. But for the first time with Vietnam, it was kind of like, there it is. We cannot deny it. This violence is very tangible. It has uh, an intensity. And so Leonard Cohen was around at that time and wrote this song. I'm just going to read a few words of his song. Uh, The song is called Like a Bird on a Wire. He says, like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in the midnight choir. I have tried in my way to be free. If I have been unkind, I hope you will let it be. If I have been untrue, I hope you know it wasn't you. Like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in the midnight choir, I have tried in my way to be free. So I really identify with that. Both the bird on the wire and the drunk in the midnight choir, I 
I um, have a long tradition in my family of drunks in the midnight choir. And, you know, I get it. I really get why they wanted to be drunk, first of all, and then why they would go to join the midnight choir. It's a, um, I think it's an attempt to respond to this intensity that life brings us. When we directly experience that much intensity, our sort of natural human responses are uh, to change the, the uh, volume, to turn the volume down somehow. And that's what we have to, I think, what we have to penetrate in order to keep the I-ness, the awareness, the one eye and the one heart. We have to be able to be in the presence of the volume and just let it be. Let it just kind of move past, just like a breeze. So the other side of the song the bird on the wire, that's something that I have a lot easier time with. Being in nature, being able to have your life within wind and within elements and within the moving of the seasons and so forth. It's much more comfortable from my point of view. But I think it's good that he said... A bird on a wire and a drunk in a midnight choir. It's kind of like, you know, we have both sides of life that as we attempt to be free, we need to balance. We need to kind of do the Nagarjuna split between opposites. The sublime bird on the wire and the ridiculous drunk in the midnight choir. Somehow we... We do the dance and we end up in between as we try to be free. Chris mentioned that one of my teachers was Krishnamurti. And he had a marvelous way of sort of detonating minds. Uh, He wrote a book called Freedom from the Known, which was the first book that I ever read of his. And I think it's still one of the best books that I've ever seen. It's about how to let go of the, the mind that struggles so much to control, understand, manipulate, alter. Uh, how to be beyond that. And so a number of times when I saw Krishnamurti, he would start talking in this way. He would look at the audience And he would say in his high-pitched Indian accent, which I'll do my best to mimic a little bit, he said, Pay no attention to the speaker. The speaker knows nothing. He will lead you astray. No words of his will lead anywhere valuable. Pay only attention to yourselves, just yourselves. A real character. 
But I think he had a lot of wisdom. You know, it, it's the Buddhist tradition of direct experience. Unless we directly experience something and verify it in ourselves, in the laboratory of our own being, our own awareness, then we should just let it pass by or lightly consider it. But what we verify within ourselves, what we directly experience, that's something that has a value. So the last piece of my memnonic is one seat. So when we create the subjective awareness of the one eye and we bring it into the body so it's embodied with the one heart, we still have need for refuge and for stability. We have need for a practice, in my experience. And so that practice I'm symbolizing by saying one seat. Take the one seat. So I try to uh, do my bit for my own awareness and my own freedom by sitting I usually like to sit in the morning. Um, But what I find is that formal sitting on a cushion is kind of like a resonance for other sitting that happens the rest of the day. And so in my experience, it's much more powerful to have a formal sitting that then is recapitulated when I sit in my car seat, for instance. If I sit in my car seat and I'm stopped at a stoplight, I can take a breath and I can touch into that that space, that heart, that awareness. And it may be brief, but it's a, a way of keeping that resonance. If I'm at a sports event, I can still notice my breath. I can still have that sense of stillness, even though there's lots going on around me. So taking the one seat for me is not just this sitting that we're doing here, but it's being of a sitting or being with sitting or uh, having a resonance with sitting wherever you go. And, of course, we can't keep that kind of awareness going all the time. I, I uh, have days that go by where I wonder what in the heck I was doing all day long. But I also have a chance every once in a while to have some special days where I notice a bird that has a, a quality about it that uh, uh, has aliveness that has value. Or I experience an exchange with another person or whatever. Lots of examples. So the one eye, the one heart, and the one seat, to me, are what you would say is a foundation for mindfulness that is embodied or Mindfulness through direct experience, direct awareness. So I've used words to try to 
get at something that is not easy to get at with words. It's, it's uh, an experience that I have when I sit, particularly for long times. Um, I've talked with other practitioners who have their own experience, their own uh, one eye, one heart, one seat kind of um, place. So I'm not going to use any more words of mine, but I want to leave some words that I think are really remarkable. There's a teacher in uh, England who brought a lot of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition from Thailand named Ajahn Sumedho, and you may have heard him. He comes to Spirit Rock sometimes. Also comes to the East Coast more, actually, to uh, IMS. And Ajahn Sumedho has a number of people that he's kind of ordained, uh, English people who have taken up robes and are living the lifestyle of a mendicant Thai forest monk. One of those is a guy named Ajahn Susito. And he's a truly remarkable guy. I have a number of tapes. I've never actually met him, but I have a number of tapes of his. And I've, One of the things that captures me is this, I, I think he is really settled and really down with this idea of direct experience. So I'm just going to read a little poem that he wrote, and then we'll have some silence, maybe a minute or two of silence. I'll ring the bell again, and then we'll have a chance to interact. And it would be lovely to hear your thoughts about how your direct experience has evolved or impacts you or things that have inspired you that you will share with somebody else. Okay, so this poem is called Alone on Retreat. He says, I'm useless at last. No one to give ear or advice to but myself. Muttering in the long exhalation of my world. Mind heaves so possessed by dim hallucinations that I get dreamed in dreams that fall as they arise. But here, presence hovers and strange joy, aspirations angels, and beyond them, the flightless, groundless patience to melt down clearly like snow beneath the blazing skies. I'm useless at last. No one to give ear or advice to but myself. Muttering, dreaming. Ah, but here, presence hovers. And strange joy. Aspirations, angels. And beyond them, the flightless, groundless patience to melt down clearly like snow beneath the blazing skies.
So thanks for that exploration of this ineffable, ineffable quality, inevitable quality. <laughs> this Thursday night is usually meant for people that are newer to practice. And so we like to have a chance for an exchange. It's always helpful to kind of hear from other people that are in practice and coming to practice and share our experience. So I encourage you to get over any shyness you may have and uh, take the opportunity to share with us as we're kind of exploring this one eye, one heart, one seat way of having direct experience in our lives. So who would like to begin? Yes, please. I'd like to ask you maybe uh, an understanding about the mind uh, where I found it to be valuable in preparing for my retirement, manipulating, creating, investing, managing, planning for Medicare security, my child's education. Even though the heart is very desirable, the presence is desirable, but planning and all of that. How can I uh, say no to that? Hmm. I think that's a good observation, and I certainly wouldn't encourage you to say no to that. That's <laughs> the mind is a very wonderful and useful tool. Uh, the, uh, in the tradition there's a phrase that says bow to your mind for it seeks to protect you bow to your mind for it seeks to enhance you so in saying all that I was saying tonight I hope I didn't want to I, I, I didn't want to dump on the mind I, uh, I too enjoy things like having some security of whatever state that is <laughs> however that's achieved and and, uh, and value using the mind the uh, the space that we can achieve in direct experience I think is a wonderful complement a space that holds all the the wonders of the mind all the creations of the mind and can have a peace and a stability around all of that so that the mind doesn't drive us, but the mind is really our servant. It's great. Great comment. Thank you. Who else has a thought? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm wanting to learn names. Your name was? Uh, my name is Serja. Serja? Mm -hmm. Great. And you? Raj. Raj. Great. Uh, Thanks, Raj. I just uh, took a course in Maui month ago, and it was, uh, it was entitled Transforming Space Strategies, and we, toward the end of it, we dealt with this concept of granting people being, which seemed to relate to what you were saying, um, being in the middle, but related to helping other people or helping that existence between two people. So, um, 
It's just interesting, one of the concepts I introduced was saying things, just saying what's there to say, you know, things that you'd normally hold back. And it's just interesting the space that that creates. Hmm. Hmm. So, you mean, if I'm reading you right, it's, uh, it's holding the other person as, as a, uh, a part of yourself almost, it sounds like. Is that what you were saying? And so that you can share those inner thoughts of those. Yeah, and also, you know, taking gender or like you were initially saying, businessman or this or that out of the equation and just experiencing person to person instead of, you know, all the other stuff that's attached to your perception. Right. Wow. And what was the course called? Uh, Transforming Yesterday's Strategies. It's taught wow. through an organization called Myanmar Education. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. It's a good title for something that kind of gets you in touch without roles and without, you know, all of that. That's, that's cool. So it's almost like transcending or uh, getting beyond strategy itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're essentially, uh, I guess, completing a lot of strategies that you can have as, you know, and then having space to, to just be with people and be with yourself, I guess. Mm. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's right on. Thank you. Other thoughts? Yes. Uh, my name is Jaris. Hi, Jaris. And I've been practicing for a few months, and I just attended a one-day retreat at the Spirit Rock. And uh, this doesn't really have to do with the one seat, but what helps me is uh, we tried walking meditation, which I'd never done before. And it's, for me, it's a, it's a good tool to, to be mindful when you're walking, be aware of your walking. Um, kind of brings you back to the observation um, and also the Howard Cohn was a teacher uh, said to, to be aware of your hands all day what they're doing mm-hmm. and it's amazing how you take your hands for granted even just driving your steering wheel or in the shower or at work typing um, so just those tricks have, have kept me from my sitting in the morning throughout the day has kept me mindful of uh, I guess it's a somewhat direct experience. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, the all that's in this this thing, that we, as you say, we take for granted. I remember I uh, had a revelation. I was sitting a long retreat back in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, about halfway through the retreat, it suddenly occurred to me that everything that I'd ever done or experienced was still within this space that I was filling. And uh, the way I knew that was that I could, um, in my mind, I could go back to the house that I lived in when I was a little kid, and I could open the door and walk into that house, and I could look around, and this is all subjective experience, and I could see every detail. I could, I could uh, you know, everything was still there. The, the humidor that my grandfather kept his cigars in. 
the Reader's Digest over in the, you know, it, it, every detail was there. And, and uh, it just blew me away that, that in this body I had access to really everything I'd ever experienced if I was just aware of it. It took me five weeks of sitting to get to the point where I could just be with that and just notice it. Thanks for sharing that. It's definitely that, that uh, pure awareness, just know, keeping that pure awareness and, and uh, letting, it, letting the hand talk to us. It's wonderful. Anybody else? Direct experience, yes. I thought there was something interesting about um, that line, like a bird on a wire. Um, because when I think of, um, especially in poetic traditions where I try to sort of convey this idea of the direct experience, you would typically think of, you know, maybe Japanese haikus or, you know, sort of Chinese landscape poems. And most of them deal with a direct experience with nature. But what's interesting to me about that image of bird on the wire is that it's almost like a convergence of nature and sort of the world around us here. It's not, you know, it's not actually a bird that you see you know, high up in the mountain or something, but it's right outside here on the telephone pole, mm-hmm. the telephone wire. I thought that was a good lesson for me, you know, just to, that the image that um, that sort of was offered in that particular line mm. is reminding me that that kind of direct experience is possible anytime, anywhere. You don't have to be hiking in the Sierras to have it. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm a hiker, and I. I love being in the Sierras, but I think you're right. I think it's that experience is even more meaningful when you see a bird on the wire and you get that same sense of vitality and the same sense of connectedness. What is your name? It's Eddie. Eddie. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, it's a great illustration of that. What is your name? Jennifer. Jennifer. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great illustration of this line that I love that says that uh, the awareness that the Buddha had and that Jesus had and that Gandhi had is the same awareness that we have. And we all have that potential to notice that leaf coming down and experience the what, what the Zen people say is the suchness of it. 
the the living quality, the the uh, the deep experience, true depth experience of that leaf coming down. We all have that. We we've probably each had experiences in our lives that we would call a luminous moment like that. That's that's a luminous moment. Uh, yes. Those luminous moments, are they, are they attachments? Should just let it go? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to sit around and trot out our luminous moments. Huh? <laughs> I like mine. Yeah, I like mine too. Yeah, I like mine too, but I think the, the best quality of a luminous moment is that it's a promise of just luminosity. Yeah. Uh, Jack Cornfield has this phrase where he says, there aren't enlightened people, but there is enlightened behavior and there are enlightened moments. And as we can string these enlightened moments together of enlightened behavior, like really perceiving directly, then we can get out to being free. Your name was? Christopher. Thanks, Christopher. Yeah. I'm Andrew. Um, Andrew. So kind of in the spirit of the middle path, I am, part of my practice is a trial that I can remember, which isn't all the times, maybe once a day I've been lucky, to try to recognize the luminosity in the ordinary moments like this one. That kind of, they all have their magic. This blooming, it's really just this moment here. Listen to people Nice. Well, in the spirit of that, we have five minutes left. I'd like to just read once again this, I think, remarkable poem that Ajahn Susito wrote. And let's just sit a little bit more, just a little quietly, and then I'll ring the bell just before nine o'clock and we'll adjourn. So again, the poem is called Alone on Retreat. I am useless at last, no one to give ear to or advice to but myself. Muttering in the long long exhalation of my world, exhalation. Mind heaves so possessed by dim hallucinations that I get dreamed in dreams that fall as they arise. But here, presence hovers and strange joy, aspirations, angels, and beyond them, the flightless, groundless patience to melt down clearly like snow beneath the blazing skies. And in the traditional way, I'd like to have us all focus on sharing the merit whatever merit has accumulated or been generated by our experience here this evening together and our sharing, may that be available and transported to where it's needed, where it most can serve, to support and encourage the freedom of all beings everywhere.